Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. He said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Second reading is from Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master felt compassion for him, canceled the debt, and let him go. This morning, we're in the third and final installment of this short three-week series. We've been calling, I'd like to, but I can't. And the idea has been each week to look at this thing that people would like to be able to do but find themselves unable to do for some reason. So the first week we talked about belief. I'd like to believe, but I can't. Last week we talked about change. I'd like to be able to change, but I can't. This week for the last installment of this series, we're going to be talking about forgiveness. I'd like to forgive. I wish I could forgive, but but sorry, I just can't. And uh, just now you heard not one but two of Jesus' more famous stories about forgiveness. We're going to use those stories as our guide into this subject this morning. We're going to break down this, this topic of forgiveness into three sections, look at it under three headings. So first, the, the definition of forgiveness. Second, the importance of forgiveness. And third, the foundation of forgiveness. The definition of forgiveness, what it is, the importance of forgiveness, why we need it, and then lastly, the foundation of forgiveness. How do you do it? Where does it come from? Those will be the, the three sections to this morning's sermon, and we'll take them one at a time. So first, the definition 
of forgiveness. Before we can uh, talk about why we need it or how we do it, we first have to know what it is. And the definition of forgiveness that we're going to be working with this morning is as follows. Forgiveness is nothing more and nothing less than the canceling of a debt. It's taking this debt that someone owes you and you tear it up. You say this debt is now null and void. Of course, I'm getting this definition from Jesus's two stories. This is the way he talks about forgiveness. It's most straightforward in the second story. It's clearest there where you've got a, a servant that owes a king a certain amount of money and he comes in and the king says, you know what, forget it. And instead of throwing him into debtor's prison, which was the way that debts have been handled for most of human history, you know, bankruptcy is a relatively new invention. He says, you're free. We're just going to pretend like the debt doesn't exist. I'm canceling it. But it's the same thing in the, in the first story about the son and the father. There, the son goes and he squanders half of the father's estate and he wants to come home because he's out of money. And so his plan is, I'll go and work as one of my father's hired hands. In other words, I'll try to pay back the debt through labor. And he gets there and his father says, no, there's, there's no debt to repay. You're not going to be one of my hired hands. We're going to forget about the whole thing. Now, obviously, in, in real life, uh, forgiveness usually doesn't involve dollars and cents. It's usually not a financial thing at all. So it's, it sometimes is, but most of the time it's not. So why does Jesus then, when he wants to talk about forgiveness, why does he reach for this financial metaphor? Why is that the place he goes to talk about forgiveness? Two reasons. Two reasons Jesus uses this financial imagery, this, this language about debt and, and repayment. The first reason is what this metaphor of seeing forgiveness as a debt does is it underscores the truth that when, uh, when somebody forgives, it doesn't make the debt go away. It doesn't make the wrong vanish. It just means one of the two parties absorbs it. So the, the biggest misconception about forgiveness is this idea that forgiveness is some sort of like magic wand that just makes bad things vanish like they never happened. And that's true for one of the two parties. It does make it like it never happened for the person who did the wrong. But that's only because the person who was wrong, the person who does the forgiving, absorbs the full cost themselves. They bear the the brunt of it, and that's what you see in these two stories. The father, when he forgives his son, it's not like the money somehow reappears. He just takes the loss fully himself. Same thing with the king. He just eats the loss. He says, I'll just cover that. One of the two parties pays. You know, if you think about, uh, here's an example. Uh, let's say you're at a cocktail party, and somebody who's had too much to drink bumps into you. They spill something on your dress, and let's say, uh, for the sake of the example, it's ruined. You know, it can't be cleaned. The, the dress is completely ruined. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, please uh, let me pay for it. Let me buy you a new dress. At that point, you have a decision to make. You can either let them buy you a new dress which would be fair, that's justice. Or you can say, you know what, don't worry about it, it's fine. That's forgiveness. But if you forgive, the stain is still there. The stain doesn't go away. You still need a new dress. It just means you pay for the new dress instead of them. Forgiveness means you pay for the wrong of the wrongdoer. And that's the first thing that the the debt metaphor underscores. Now the second thing it underscores, and hopefully this is what you were already thinking, is that it, it underscores the fact that, that forgiveness is sort of nonsensical and sort of 
absurd and it's always really unfair. So going back to this example, let's let's say that your dress was worth three hundred dollars. So the the moment that that person bumps into you, they made a three hundred dollar mistake. They incurred a three hundred dollar debt uh, against you. And the question is, why should you pay for their three hundred dollar mistake? Especially since they're a complete stranger. You know, this person at this party that you don't know makes a $300 mistake, and you say, well, I'll pay for it. And why, why are you against all the other people in the room? None of the other strangers in the room are saying, well, I'll pay for that person's $300 mistake. So why you, just because you happen to be the person that was wronged, does it make any sense at all for you to pay for their mistake? Another way of putting that would be to say that forgiveness is always a miscarriage of justice. You know, we're, we're taught to think of it as this good thing, this necessary thing almost, but it's always a miscarriage of justice. If I think about my kids, let's say that my uh, two-year-old Kate uh, does something to my six-year-old Reese. She pulls her hair or bites her or something. She'd never do something like that, but I've heard about other kids doing that kind of thing. And Let's say Kate bites Reese. And so I say, Kate, you have to say, I'm sorry, Reese. Let's say she, she apologizes. Then what do I expect Reese to say? I expect Reese to say, I've taught her to say, it's okay. You know, essentially, I, I forgive you. But that's not justice. One kid just bit another kid and got away with it. And what's, what's funny about it is that it's not like it would be all that complicated or onerous to carry out justice. It's actually pretty simple. There are two different ways you could do it. Justice just means balancing the scales. So the first thing I could do is I could say, okay, Kate, you bit Reese, so Reese, now you get to bite, bite Kate. You just, uh, Kate, you, you stand there and take it like a man. Um, <laughs> The second thing I could do, which would be just as good at balancing the scales, both of these are effective, is I could say, all right, Kate, you bit Reese, and so now to make it up to her, you have to be her slave for the next five minutes. For for five minutes, you have to do whatever she tells you to do. And both of those make perfect sense. You know, in the one case, you're, you're evening the scales by, you're taking a debit out of Kate's account to make her even with Reese. She takes a bite out of, out of her account, and then the... the other way you can even it is by putting a credit back into Reese's account to put her back up to where she was before and make her even. But we don't do either of those. We do in, in the courts. This is exactly what justice looks like in the courts. You wrong me, so you pay me to make it up to me. Or you killed somebody, so you get killed. This is exactly how justice works. And yet in personal relationships, for some odd reason, we, we don't do this. We expect this standard of forgiveness to reign. That's the first section of the sermon. That's the definition of forgiveness. Is it's the cancellation of a debt. And the importance of that metaphor that Jesus uses is as it underscores two very important truths about forgiveness, which is, on the one hand, it, it doesn't make the debt go away. It just means one of the two people absorbs it themselves. On the other hand, it, it means that forgiveness really doesn't make a lot of sense. It's very unfair, and it's, it's sort of absurd. So now let's move on to the second section. That's the definition of forgiveness. Now let's talk about the importance of forgiveness. That's what it is. Now let's talk about why we need it. And the question you should be asking after that first section is, yeah, why do we need it? You know, what, what is the point of this thing where I, I pay for somebody else's wrong against me? I don't, I don't really get that. And why is that of any benefit to me? Why, why should I be interested in this? So what we're going to talk about in the second section is two different types of situations or scenarios. Because the reason forgiveness is important and the reason it matters uh, differs based on the type of relationship you have with the person that, or the party that wronged you. So the, the first situation or scenario we need to look at 
is a situation in which the person who wronged you is someone who you must or you might like to or you should have a continued relationship with. So what I mean by that is it's not a stranger, not somebody from your past, not somebody that you can easily cut out of your life and say, I don't want to know this person anymore. It's somebody that you have to continue to know. You're somebody in your family, a friend, your spouse, your parents, your kids, a sibling, a co-worker, a long-time friend. Why in these cases, in relationships like these, should you forgive? What's the upside of forgiveness in these cases? The answer is the reason you forgive in these cases is because forgiveness is the only means by which the relationship itself can continue. And this is what you see in the, the first story with the father and the son. The son comes and says, Dad, I have this debt against you. Let me pay you back. I'll be your hired hand. And the father says, well, I don't want another hired hand. I've already got plenty of those, but I only have two sons. I want a son back. And the only way I can get a son back is to just cancel the debt. So let's do that. We'll just cancel the debt so that the relationship can be restored. Same thing with my two daughters. As soon as Reese forgives and cancels the debt, then they're sisters again. And if, I, if we do the biting back thing, they, they don't remain sisters. They're enemies. Or if I say, well, you're now her slave for five minutes, then justice is served, but the relationship is severed. Now they don't have a sister relationship. They have a slave and master relationship. You say, well, can't the relationship be restored after justice is served. You know, you can't you have the repayment first, and then after that happens, everything goes back to normal. So with the father and the son, why can't the son pay off his debt first? Justice is served, everything's on the level, and then they go back to being father and son. But the question is, would things ever be the same after that? Wouldn't it rather be the case that their relationship from that point forward would be forever colored by this repayment phase that they had been in, this this time when they were debtor and creditor to each other? See, debtors and creditors don't usually go on vacation together. They're not usually close friends. And the reason for that is the debtor-creditor relational dynamic is pretty dominant. And it makes a a relationship on any other plane sort of untenable. And so what you have is you have the only way to really get them back, not just now, but, but even in the long term is to just forgive it. And if you don't forgive it, if you make them pay, then yeah, justice is served, but at what cost? This is what happens in marriages all the time. So let's say uh, that the husband has wronged the wife. It could be, it obviously goes both ways, but for for convenience sake, for the example, let's say the husband has wronged the wife. What usually happens then, or what often happens then, is that then the wife insists upon a repayment phase. And it can go in either of the two ways that we talked about it already. So on the one hand, she can punish her husband in return to make things even, punish him with coldness, punish him with distance, with the withholding of love and affection, punish him with harsh words until he has paid back the debt. The other option is she can sit back and say, well, I expect you to make it up to me. You know, if, if, and if you are a really good boy for a week or a month or a year and you're on your best behavior and you do all these things, then... I'll consider us even again, then you've paid me back, and we're okay again. But what's weird about this is after that's done, let's say that that goes smoothly, which it never does, but after it's done, do you really want a former debtor for a husband? Isn't that sort of awkward? And if you look at it from his perspective, does he really want a former creditor for a wife? It's just never the same after that. 
And so what forgiveness is, is it's saying, look, this really happened. You wronged me. You are in my debt. It did really hurt. But the reason I'm going to forgive this and not make you pay it back is because I want you back. And the only way to get you back is to forgive this debt. It's the first situation or scenario in which you've got to forgive. And the reason why is in these relationships where you want to have a continued relationship with the person. But there's a second sort of situation or scenario in which you've got to forgive, which is obviously the opposite, where you don't necessarily need to or want to have a continued relationship with this person anymore. Maybe it's somebody from your past, somebody you don't even know anymore, somebody that's very easy to cut out of your life, a stranger. And so it's the, the reason for forgiving couldn't be that you have to forgive to get them back because you don't want them back. So in those cases, why is forgiveness still important even then? The answer to that is, the reason you have to cancel this debt that somebody owes you in those cases is because they are never going to pay it back anyway. Either they refuse to pay it back or they can't pay it back. You're not going to collect. And that's what you see in the, the second story about the king and the servant. The reason the king forgives is because the, the debt is so big that the servant can never pay it back. And so he says, what's the point? I'm just going to forgive this. I'm going to cancel this. And a debt that's never going to be paid back, the only sane thing to do is to cancel it. What any accountant will tell you is that if you have this debt that you know for sure you're never going to collect, you have to take it out of the assets column, and you have to just write it down as a loss, as painful as that may be, because otherwise your, your books tell a distorted story about how things really are. And when it comes to personal debts, you know, non-financial debts, the distortion that comes from carrying this debt that's never going to be collected, the distortion is a lot worse than your books not giving an accurate financial picture. Rather, the distortion is, is something that can actually corrupt you from the inside. There's this verse in Hebrews 12 that says, don't let a bitter root grow in you. Don't let a bitter root grow in you. And it says, by this way, many have become defiled. And defiled is a pretty strong word, corrupted. But it's inevitable. If you carry this debt that is never going to be paid, and you have in the back of your mind, justice needs to be served, justice will be served, justice should be served, even though it's never going to be served. There's no way to keep that from being a bitter root, eventually. Uh, A couple years ago, uh, Brittany, my wife, had a run-in with Ikea. Um, I'm telling this story because I think a lot of you can probably relate to it, and I did ask her first if it was okay if I shared this. Uh, but what happened was we had just moved, and uh, we needed some things for the house. Ikea was going to be the cheapest place to get them. And so she looked into you know going out there and getting a car back and everything. And by the time we did all that, she figured it was going to be cheaper and easier to just have them deliver the stuff. So you know they set a day for delivery, and they've got a window of time that they're going to deliver it in. First problem is they're they're late. They're really late. Second problem is some of the items are damaged. And the third problem is some of the items are missing. So Ikea is now in her debt. They owe her for the time they wasted. They owe her for the damage they caused to these items that she bought. And they owe her for these items that they didn't give that she, she paid for. So she says, you know, I'm just going to call them tomorrow. And I'm sure they'll be eager to, to make this right and to, to, to pay their debt to me. They come, I come home from work the next day. And she's a little tense, a little edgy. And I say, what's going on? And she says, oh, it's nothing. I just got off the phone with Ikea. And I said, well, well how'd it go? She's not good. She gives me some of the details of the conversation. She says, I, th- I think I'm going to call him back 
tomorrow. You know, I'll talk to somebody else. So just to, to shorten the story and fast forward to the end, nine months and 15 or so hours on the phone later, Ikea was still in our debt. They still hadn't paid. And they were still, the, the point was they were never going to pay. They were never going to pay from the very beginning. And at some point, Brittany had to say, for her own sanity, I'm just going to cancel this debt. The debt is real. They owe me. The, the debt is very real, but I'm just going to cancel it. Why? Because all this is doing is ruining my life, a root of bitterness growing up in me. Now, there are some of you right now that are thinking, you know, if it had been me, they would have paid. Like, I, I, I trust me, if it had been me, they would have paid. And if you're thinking that, that, that is nothing to be proud of. That is, that's... <laughs> You're missing it. You're missing the point. If you're thinking that, what that means is you are, you're deeply twisted. And, and I mean that, twisted, I mean that literally. I mean you're literally twisted. There, there are uh, four words in English that all came, come from the same old English root. They are the words wrath, wreath, writhe, and wraith. So what is wrath? Everybody knows what wrath is, right? It's to be angry. But it's, it's more than that, because what's a wreath? A wreath is these branches that have been twisted to form a certain shape. What is writhe? Writhe is to be twisted, to be, have your body twisted by pain. So wrath isn't just being angry, it's being twisted by anger, being painfully twisted by anger. And, and what's, a, what's the last one? What's a wraith? A wraith is an old word for a ghost, and it's a particular kind of ghost it's a ghost who was a person that was wronged in their life. They had some wrong committed against them. And as a ghost, they are doomed to relive the wrong over and over again for all eternity. See, when you let this bitter root grow in you, it always results in wrath. It always results in being twisted by anger, writhing in pain. And in the end, you always become a wraith. You always become a ghost of your former self, consumed by reliving this wrong over and over and over again. It's the second section of the sermon. Those are the, the, the reasons why forgiveness is important and necessary in these two different types of situations, either in these situations where it, you have a relationship with a person, and in that case, it's the only way the relationship can continue, or also in these cases where you don't have a relationship with a person, and in that case, it's for you. It's for your own sanity and your own self-preservation. That still leaves one very major question unanswered, which is why there's still one section left of the sermon, so let's go there now. Section number three, third and finally this morning, the foundation of forgiveness. That's what it is. That's why we need it. But lastly this morning, how do we do it? Where does this come from? What's the source of it? What is it built upon? And this is where the whole uh, I'd like to but I can't motif comes in. Because you know wh- the way you might be feeling is, well, okay, I can see, in theory, why forgiveness would be a good thing. I, I get what's, what's potentially uh, the upside is about it. I, I get that on paper. But the problem is, for me, I just can't. I can't. I'm, I'm too wound up. I'm too hurt. I'm too dug in. It, the bitterness has already started, and I don't know how to let go of it. And even if I want a relationship with this person back, the, my desire for justice is much stronger than that, and my hurt is much deeper than that. So I don't really know where to start. It's almost like you feel like forgiveness is a switch that has to be flipped inside of you. And for you, in your heart, it's just off. The forgiveness switch is off. 
you don't even know where the switch is. So how do you find that switch? How do you magically, miraculously make forgiveness come alive in your heart? The two passages we looked at this morning give us the answer to that because there is one key word that's in both passages, and it's the word compassion. It's the same word in Greek in both passages, and it's, it's used of the king and the father. If the king, it says, before he forgave, he had compassion on the servant, and the father, before he forgave, it says he's had compassion on the son. It's not by accident that this word is used in both stories that Jesus tells about forgiveness, because it is compassion that is the key to, that is the source of, that is the foundation of forgiveness. So what's compassion? If you break the word down, calm, the, the prefix means with, Passion means suffer, isn't it? like the, the passion of the Christ. Come, passion, to suffer with. So compassion is when you suffer with somebody else. You see them suffering, and your heart goes out to them. We have that great idiom in English, my heart goes out to you. You identify with them, and you suffer with them on their behalf. You say, well, how does that make sense in the context of forgiveness? You know, what do you, what do you mean me suffering with the person that wronged me. I mean, they're the perpetrator. I'm the person that was wronged. I'm the victim. I'm the one that suffered. So if anything, they should be feeling compassion toward me. They, they should be suffering with me. I mean, in what sense have they suffered anyway? They're the one that did the bad thing. They, they haven't suffered. How does this make any sense? So my question to you is, do you know what it's like to be in debt? Do you know what it's like to have this guilt hanging over your head? Do you know what it's like to have, have screwed everything up and to be deeply ashamed of yourself. This past week, uh, as those of you who are, are parents of more than one child know, if there's a new baby in the house, when there's a new baby in the house, the older siblings tend to act out. And so this, this past week, Anna, our four-year-old, was upset about something, and she uh, took this door and she slammed it into Brittany, her mom, a couple of times, and then she hit Brittany and then she ran away sobbing. And she had never done anything like that to her mom before. So as I'm watching this, and after it's over, who do I feel compassion for? Who am I suffering with? Who does my heart go out to? Does it go out to the victim, my, my poor wife who was attacked? No, my, my heart goes out to Anna, who is sick with guilt and shame and has no idea even where to begin with rebuilding her life. Totally isolated. And you say, you know, that's a really offensive example. Because what you're doing is you're minimizing the pain of the victim. You know, to, to focus on the pain of the perpetrator. How does that make any sense at all? And, you know, it's, that, that's, it's absurd. And, and for me, it wasn't some small thing that was done to me. You know, it wasn't somebody slamming a door up against me or somebody spilling something on my dress, or somebody biting me, or somebody not delivering something that I ordered, all these little trite examples you've used. For me, it was something really terrible that was done to me. And you have no idea what it's like to have something really terrible done to you. Fine, be that as it may. My question is still the same question, which is, do you know what it's like to do something really terrible to someone else? Do you know what that's like? You say, they're not even sorry. Well, you don't know, do you? I mean, that may be the pose that they take to you. That may be the pose they take to other people. They, they may not even know themselves. But you don't know what's going on inside them. You don't know the things they have to do to live with themselves. You don't know all of the different ways that this is wrecking their life. You say, sorry, I, I'm not. You can try as much as you want. I'm never going to go with you 
down this path. This makes no sense to me. They're the one that hurt me. I, they are the guilty one. I am the innocent one. So if anybody should be having compassion for anybody, people should be having compassion for me. But are you really innocent? And I, I don't mean in this particular incident. Maybe you are innocent with respect to this person. That could be. That's, that's usually not the case. It's very rare that one person is totally guilty and the other is totally innocent. But there are the exceptions. There are the, the cases out of bounds in which that is the case. The, person, the other person was completely at fault, and you were completely innocent. So let's say for the sake of argument that this is one of those cases, and you're totally innocent with respect to this person. My question is, are you innocent, period? Are you innocent in general? Are you innocent on the whole? And the answer, of course, is no. You've hurt people. You've wronged people. You've messed up in all these various ways, which means the implication of that is you need forgiveness too, from somebody, maybe not from this person, but from somebody. And so, by, free, by refusing to forgive, aren't you burning the very bridge that you yourself need to walk across? That's what we're talking about when we talk about compassion. Compassion is refusing to see this person that wronged you as the enemy or the villain or this monster, but instead seeing yourself in their eyes, seeing yourself in their shoes and saying, if this was me, or if this will be me, or if this could be me, how would I feel and what would I want? And if you're a Christian, that's not a hypothetical. It's not just this thought experiment. If you're a Christian, if you believe the Christian story and the Christian message, then this has already happened. This sort of forgiveness already has been offered to you. So it's not just, well, what if? You have to look at what already occurred. You know, these two stories that Jesus tells where he uses this word compassion twice, once of the king and once of the Father. It's interesting because if you look through the Gospels at the words that describe Jesus' own emotional state, the word that is used of Jesus' emotions more than any other word is the word compassion. He had compassion on them. Compassion for him. He had compassion for her. And so what that means is that when he's telling these stories, he's doing what he's usually doing, which is trying to tell us about himself. He's saying, this is me. I'm the king. I'm the father. I'm the one that has this compassion for you. Even though you're the one that did wrong and you're the one that hurt me, I'm the one that's canceling your debt. And Jesus' forgiveness is the best example of all of this principle we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that forgiveness does not mean the debt goes away. It just means one of the two parties absorbs it fully himself. So you owed God. You were in debt to God. All of the things that you have ever done wrong to anybody, you did to him. And Jesus says, I'm just going to absorb that. I'm going to cancel that debt, but that's not free. And Jesus on the cross, Jesus being crucified, is what it looks like for him to absorb your debt, for him to pay your bill. But then what he says is, is, okay, so you've already seen that. That already happened. Which means that now I expect you, I expect you to offer the same thing to other people. Do you see how different this is? than uh, Buddha or Muhammad or Moses saying, oh, you should forgive. Forgiveness is is good. Forgiveness is necessary. For them or for any other religious teacher, it's just this this ideal, this principle. Well, it's something to strive for. But with Jesus, it's not that at all. With Jesus, it's actually he takes this thing that was absurd and was nonsensical and was totally unfair, and he turns it into something that is completely obligatory and completely fair. He said, look, I did it for you. I already did this for you. 
So what right do you have to not do this for this other person? You don't have a choice. He says this several times in the New Testament. It's one of the, the harshest truths in the whole Bible. He says, if you do refuse, if you do refuse to forgive, then what that means is you are closing yourself off from my forgiveness to you. So you can't have it both ways. Either you get forgiven and you forgive, or you refuse to forgive and you don't get forgiven. It's this, this is the phrase in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The two cannot be separated. Going back to the, the two stories, and we'll close with this. Well, the scripture reading this morning, both stories were truncated. So we only read the, the first part of both stories, and we stopped where it looked like both stories have a happy ending. But in actuality, both stories actually have an unhappy ending. So first story about the, the wayward son that the father forgives, the unhappy ending there is about the second son, this older brother that was the good son. And what, what, what he says is, you know, his dad says, your, your brother's home, we're going to have a party to celebrate. And the brother says, celebrate what? You're throwing him a party for squandering half your estate? Where's my party for not squandering half your estate? You know, this doesn't make any sense at all. So the father goes ahead with the party, and it's the older brother, the one who had done nothing wrong, that is left outside in the cold on his own, separated from his father by unforgiveness. And then in the second story, it's actually even worse than that. The servant, after he's forgiven by the king and has his debt canceled and written off, he goes out, and immediately after that, he happens to, as a matter of coincidence, run into this guy who owes him a small amount of money, a tiny fraction of what he had owed the king. And he grabs the guy for the, by the collar, and he, he threatens him. He says, you better pay up. And somebody sees this, and they go, they go back, and they tell the king what had happened, so the king calls him back in, and the king doesn't hesitate. He says, you, you know what I said about your debt being forgiven? I changed my mind. And uh, let's, let's have you go to prison after all, like, like we had talked about to begin with. See, both guys are unable to forgive because they haven't experienced forgiveness themselves for two different reasons. The older brother, he didn't think he had anything to be forgiven of. He thought he had done everything right, so he couldn't relate. He couldn't relate to this younger brother because, well, I don't know what that's about. He failed to have compassion for him. He couldn't forgive, and he ends up on the outside. And the, the servant, we don't really know what that's about. You know, we don't know. He, the forgiveness had been offered to him. We don't know why he doesn't receive it. Either he doesn't believe the king, he thinks the, the king isn't telling the truth, and he feels like he still has to get the money to pay the king back, or maybe he thinks he deserves forgiveness. You know, he thinks, well, the king owed that to me anyway. You know, it was an unjust debt to begin with. Whatever the case is, he, the, the forgiveness doesn't register on an emotional level, which is why, as incredible as it sounds, he walks right out of the king's chambers. And immediately afterwards, immediately after he had just been in that exact same position himself, he turns right around and he is unable to see himself in the eyes of this guy that owes him. He has no compassion for him. doesn't relate to him. can't identify with him, even though he was just in the same position himself two minutes ago. It's almost unbelievable. You know, it's almost like too much of a stretch, like it's a silly story. Like, well, how could that ever happen? But Jesus' point is, don't you see that that happens every week? You come here to church, and you, you hear about how I've forgiven everything you've ever done. All of your sins have been washed away. 
And then you turn right around in that same afternoon, you refuse to forgive this person that wronged you. Jesus says, watch yourself. Watch yourself. Because if you're not careful, it is going to be you, not the person that wronged you, but you, the innocent one, who is left out in the cold. Let's pray. Father, we've been hurt and we want things to be put right. We want the person who hurt us to pay. It's not fair for them to get away with it, for it to be like it never happened for them when for us it has happened and there's no way of erasing that. It's pain that we have to carry around with us every day. It doesn't seem fair to us at all, but then we look and see the way you have forgiven us. We look and see the way that you paid our debts, that you canceled our debts at great cost to yourself, and we see that we have no choice. So I pray that by this realization, by the pressure that this puts upon our consciences and our hearts, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would draw us toward this way of life that you want us to embrace that makes no sense and and seems totally absurd to the world, but is the way that you want your children to behave. And I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would make it possible, that you would make this sacrifice of Christ on our behalf so real to us, you'd make us able to receive it on such a deep level that it makes this question of forgiveness a non-question. It turns it into something that's inevitable. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.